Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Before Elon Musk was the world's wealthiest man, founder of a rocket company and an electric car company, he was best known as one of the founders of PayPal. Other PayPal alumni went on to found companies like YouTube, Yelp, and LinkedIn. And the Don of the PayPal mafia, Peter Thiel, is now known for his political activism and contributions to Republican campaigns. So what can we learn about Musk and Thiel and about Silicon Valley from the early history of PayPal? To find out, I'm joined by Jimmy Sony. Jimmy is an award-winning author of three books. His first two, co-authored with Rob Goodman, are Rome's Last Citizen, a biography of Cato the Younger, and A Mind at Play, a biography of Claude Shannon. His latest is The Founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley, released earlier this year. Jimmy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. What kind of boss are all those nervous Twitter employees getting? You know, I think before I even answer the question, the disclaimer that I have to attach to it because it only feels fair is I never spoke to Elon about social networks, right? Like we spoke about money. We spoke about product development. We spoke about PayPal and X.com and his early years and some decisions that he made right in the middle of college and then right after. But the words Twitter and Facebook never really entered our conversations. And I, I say that because it's important to not, I think it's important for people who are doing this kind of work not to speak out of school. Um, but you asked a more interesting and more, I think, applicable question, which is what kind of boss is he? There, I would offer kind of a couple of observations. One, Twitter engineers, but Twitter employees broadly defined, should be prepared for a boss who's extremely hands-on. There is no part of the job at any of his companies that Elon like does not have the capacity to do for himself. And then oftentimes just to like test himself, he'll do it. Right. And so, so there's, there's these, you know, maybe apocryphal, but I actually think they're, they're real stories about he'll go in and like want to get really involved in like valve design, right. Or, or some really arcane piece of engineering. I saw this when I was looking at his earliest years at zip two, you know, he was writing the code right at the beginning. Um, so I think you can expect, or they can expect rather, like a, a boss who's got a, a finger feel for a lot of the things that they do, whether that is branding, comms, design, marketing, all the way you know up to engineering. Um, the second thing I think, and this isn't, I'm not saying anything that anybody hasn't said elsewhere, but I think it's important to reiterate, this is a person driven by conviction, not by ambition about money. Um, and, and those two things are actually sort of important to, to get right and in the right sequence, meaning if you are driven, if typical CEO, like you worry about quarterly returns, you worry about making sure that you've made your investors public or private very happy, right? If you're driven by conviction, you manage and operate differently. So I, I, I would just say that, that people think of, of Tesla and SpaceX, you know, these are things that he had been interested in and wanted to do from his teenage years. And again, those are the years that I looked at in part. So if he 
if he has said that he believes that Twitter is a certain kind of platform that should operate in a certain kind of way, it's not coming from a place of believing that he can eke out five percentage points and then package it up for a sale a year from now. The idea is that he's going to want to turn it into whatever he has said he is going to turn it into. Uh, so those are sort of the two the two big things I would say is that I I think that people have this tendency to like feel like he they have to interpret the tea leaves but like he's told you exactly what's on the tea leaves like <laughs> and he's done it on twitter right um and so that those are my my two views is that they bet you know and also get ready for hard work that's the lot that's the last thing is that there's no you know there, there there are very few places i imagine that are as intense as tesla or spacex as in terms of places to work because he feels like he's on a mission so I, so I guess your advice to Twitter employees is to go look at his Twitter account. Well, I, I think my advice would be go, go look at his Twitter account and then be, and again, I'm, you know, it's funny. I even saying it out loud, I'm not, I'm really not in the business of advice giving, like nobody should really take their advice from me on this. Um, what I would say is that what you see is what you get and what he tweets is what will happen. And so if he has said that he is worried about bots, you're going to see a sort of, you know, like a, a, a war on bots. If he has said that he believes there should be an edit button, I think we will see that in short order. I don't follow these things every day. Like these are like, I try to spend as little time on that platform as, as I can, but- I won't hold that against you. All uh, right. I mean, hopefully he doesn't either, right? <laughs> but what I would say is if he has said that he believes that Twitter should steer in the direction of, of more free speech, whatever that- means like that's where it's going and so my view would be go read what he has said on the subject in the past uh look at the, his own pattern of usage and then prepare for change and like that's i think a big part of this is that twitter is likely to change because he's somebody who has expressed a desire to change it and bought it for that purpose like it does it seems to be sort of like i mean these are seem kind of basic but it feels like it cuts through a lot of the chatter you hear around this where there's some like weird grand plan. No, like he has said exactly what he's going to do and he's likely to do it. Any trepidation or difficulty when it comes to writing a book about an online payments company? I mean, you could have written a book about SpaceX or Tesla, which might seem more sort of inherently interesting, but you did PayPal. One, was it difficult, was it difficult selling that? And what sort of drew you to it? You know, a couple, a couple of thoughts in response. One is, like, I think I maybe had the assumption going in that it was going to be like a humdrum story about payments. And it turned into like a Shakespearean level drama with, you know, palace coups and lots of tension and, and sort of fun combat. Um, you know, it, it's sort of like if, if billions were nerdier, this is what it would be, right? <laughs> I think um, that's a great description. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I, would, I would actually, you know, I had the, the good fortune until she passed away of working with um, Alice Mayhew at Simon and Schuster. And Alice is this sort of like, was this like legendary kind of like editor of editors, like super sort of old school, hard bitten, you know, New Yorker, but also like had a soft spot in her heart for authors who had kind of like ideas that they wanted to make swing on the page. And, you know, she's most famous, I think, for working with people like Walter Isaacson or Doris Kearns Goodwin. Um, and like, again, I'm like admittedly at the kids table in, on a roster like that, but I kind of pitched it to her and I said, you know, you have this sort of finishing school for Silicon Valley, like PayPal 
gave, you know, it gave the creators of YouTube and Yelp and LinkedIn, all these people, like their first powerful professional experience, but nobody has actually gone back and like asked what happened in that time. And she had done a book um, with Walter Isaacson and Evan Thomas that explored the like 20th century foreign policy kind of coterie of people like that were all, um, you know, working together and in tension with each other. And she got it. She was like, that's what this is. It's, it's actually a story about this group of people as opposed to one individual. So she understood it. I, I think the other thing is like, it would be really hard to write about Tesla and SpaceX. Uh, it, it's hard to write about these people. They are busy. They, you know, they, they're very, they're very careful with their, like their words, their language. Like it, it, I would have just, I think I would have like aged very rapidly if I was writing about something they were working on today. It was much, much easier to be in like nostalgia mode and write about something that they were doing two decades ago. Few of the people here are probably very common to the, the listeners, Peter Thiel, Elon Musk. Who are some of the sort of the less common people that were super important? Sure. Um, you know, I interviewed over 250 people for this thing. So it, you're asking me sort of like to pick my favorite kids, right? Which is really, really tough. Um, I kicked the story off with, with Max Levchin. And I think within Silicon Valley circles, you know, Max is, is, a, is what he, within sort of if you were in certain zip codes in Palo Alto and you said that name, he is a household name, right? Um, outside of those zip codes, he, he maybe isn't. But I found him to be just a, a phenomenally interesting figure. He was one of the co-founders of PayPal. Today, he's the CEO of a company called Affirm. And he has this entrepreneurial bug. Uh, he, he like people have asked him to try to like pin down like why do you do what you do? Why do you build like multi-billion dollar companies? He's like, that's just just what I do. I don't I don't have like a. It's actually just how I want to spend my time and energy doing this specific thing. Um, I really took a shine to his story. He has a kind of classic immigrant story. He arrives when he's in high school arrives in Illinois and uh, just outside of Chicago and ends up at the University of Illinois. And I kind of trace his story through this whole thing. He, you know, th there are a number of people obviously who are super high profile, Reid Hoffman, Peter Thiel, Elon Musk. But I kicked the story off with Max because it's really Max's work in mobile cryptography that, that, that creates the, the butterfly, that starts the butterfly effect that leads to PayPal. And so I, I wanted people to know him. I, I think of him as, as this kind of engineer's engineer. Um, and in a way, like, I, I don't know that he wanted that. He actually was really surprised because he was like, wow, you did a lot of, he's like, he says, I'm like, oh, that's a lot of me. I didn't, I didn't expect that. Um, but I, I think that he's probably one of the figures that's not as well known, but that's super consequential. And the way he worked really inspired this team of engineers, even as they went on to do other things. You, you called it a finishing school. So what were the skills imparted in that finishing school? Yeah, it, you know, it's a question that in a funny way, I still am wrestling with, even as I get to the end of the book process. Um, because, I, you know, every day I sort of think about that, like, it, because I heard so many different stories and so many different little recollections of like lessons learned or, or moments that stood out to people. Um, I'll, I'll highlight a few and, and I'll start with one that I don't know that many people would, would expect because I didn't expect it going in. Like you sort of expect, all right, you're a learner how to work in a company, do all this stuff. I interviewed this person 
And one of the things that she said is she's like, it's a funny thing that you're catching me on my inter- catching me today for our interview. And I said, why is that? And she said, because I'm about to like sell or buy a property, like a, a dream home for myself. And I just sold another property, something like that. And what followed from that was actually a half hour of her meditating on the on a key learning from her PayPal years, which was about individual personal money management. So one of the things she said is she's like, she's like, we didn't none of like very few of us knew what equity or RSUs or, or you know, this sort of stuff was. We didn't know how you could like use tax advantage vehicles to buy equity. And then she's like, we were like, you know, it. and she said, what I credit PayPal with is, is we, I was in the room with people who were maybe like a few paces ahead of me professionally, but were willing to take time to walk me through the finer points of like personal money management. And I found that I was like, I was so surprised. You know, I, I thought, I just thought to myself, like, look, all these people are brainiacs. They go off, they read books, they understand. But actually there was this kind of group learning in how to create wealth. And I don't mean wealth, surely there's the wealth in the kind of entrepreneurial sense, but actually personal wealth. Like one of the big things for all of these people was like just learning the lingo, just learning the kind of like operating system of Silicon Valley and like how your particular slice of this company becomes something that is is meaningful to you. More more practically and probably more relevant to, to kind of our discussion, you know, there, there is a view from the outside in about how technology is created. And I think that there's some real misunderstandings about it. And, and I think for this particular group, this part of this finishing school was, here is the actual nitty gritty on how you build, how a series of pixels on the internet comes to be valued for $1.5 billion, right? Like that, that particular process is messy and it's gritty and it's got this weird sort of it has to plow itself under all the time and you have to move really rapidly. Hierarchy is not a thing. All of those lessons are, I think, some of the biggest takeaways. I had people tell me, you know, I had this great experience where I interviewed the, the, the co-founders of YouTube. And one of them mentioned to me, he said, you know, we took a lot from our PayPal experience into YouTube because it was the thing we did basically right after. And I said, well, get specific. And he said, you know, we often had this experience of PayPal that we were always like, we were always thought of as a bit parasitic. Like we would, we would be on a website and some user would want us to be on that website. And the people who own that website hated it because they were like, oh my God, there's another PayPal button. The same thing happened between YouTube and MySpace. So MySpace gets super, this is like turning, taking the time, you know, the time machine back. Yeah, yeah. MySpace gets really frustrated when the first YouTube videos begin to graffiti tag its website, right? What the PayPal people did that was a, a, a byproduct of their PayPal experience is they got the MySpace users to complain to MySpace when they shut the YouTube product down. And so they turned the users against their own, against the service. And, and little things like that, even about how do you embed a YouTube video? A lot of those questions and their answers came out of how do you embed a PayPal button throughout the internet, right? And so you have this kind of direct experience of building something and then watching it scale. The last thing I would say is the finishing school had this odd quality of some people sort of probably got what you might call like fabulously wealthy to the point that if they decided they were never going to work again, they wouldn't have to. But in point of fact, what people miss about the story is that it's not that these people walked away with enough money to sit on a beach. Many of them walked away with what somebody described to me as, as down payment money, but not retirement money, right? Meaning that they had made enough and had enough success. So there was a tiny bit of security 
but they sort of like by virtue of of need like had to keep doing other things in the world right it wasn't like they were going to do this and then go sail off into the sunset and so you had this it, it hit meaning if they had not made any money you could have learned the lesson that like this just wasn't building technology wasn't something you should do because it's not financially remunerative and if you had had like go sit on the private island money people might have just checked out they hit this kind of like interesting sweet spot right in the middle where there was this real powerful sense that you can be successful, but that your last outing maybe wasn't quite this like massive thing that you would hope for. Um, and I heard that from enough people that I took it to be one of the, the key features of this, this particular experience is that there was, there was definitely wealth created, but it was not like, you know, uh, go off and, and let the index funds passively give you dividends kind of wealth. There were a lot of companies founded in the 1990s, especially the late 90s, and only a fraction made it to the other side of the internet stock bubble. Why is PayPal still around? It's one of the key questions that I explore because PayPal properly understood is this, it, it, it actually is basically created right at the tail end of the dot-com boom, but it really starts to flourish in the middle of the dot-com bust. And so you have this very odd experience of, of, I interviewed person after person who said, you know, the most terrifying thing was actually visiting this website, pardon the French, but the website was called fuckedcompany.com. Um, and, and I'm sure people who are listening remember it. And basically fucked company was like cataloging all of the many, many failures, you know, painful and funny that were happening in the middle of the dot-com bust. And one of the people I interviewed said to me, you know, we woke up every day basically like assuming that that was the day the PayPal would end up on Fox Company. Like that was the day it was all going to be done. This The racket was all up. Um, a couple of key reasons for their survival. One, timing. They close a nine-figure $100 million round of fundraising in March of 2000. Just weeks after that round closes is when the NASDAQ really starts its life. The timing is eerie. I mean, there were people who described to me in theological terms, right? But that is a big thing. If you have enough money to ride out a year, year and a half, like that is that just you're you're simply kept alive by virtue of the fact that you have the money to stay alive, even if the company is failing. That's one big thing. The second big thing is, you know, this was a team of, of exceptional problem solvers. And many of the biggest problems that they faced from a caught from the cost side, things like fraud and, and et cetera, they were able to solve their way out of or invent their way out of. And so you had a team that was just like, they were just very, very good, flexible problem solvers on that team. The third thing is the product took off and they goosed the growth as much as they could. So part of what they came to understand about payment networks is scale actually matters a great deal. Like if, if you and I join a payment system and everybody we know is on it, the incentives for us to, uh, like, there's a strong disincentive to not join, right? It's sort of like you, you'd be the, the one person, like, not, like, still using Quill and, and, and Ink, right, as opposed to, like, sending a text message. Um, PayPal was similar at a certain point, particularly in this ecosystem where the product takes off on eBay, it becomes foolish not to be on PayPal, right? Like, it kind of, you're like a very odd, eccentric person if you're not on PayPal at a certain point. Building that scale is not accidental. They did deliberate things to build the product to that scale. But then once they've achieved it, it's sort of hard to put that payment genie back in the bottle. Like you've just got the growth there and you have more people joining and the incentives on both sides are really powerful. If you are an eBay seller, 
you're incentivized to use PayPal because all your buyers are on it. And if you're a buyer, you're incentivized to use it because it's an easy system by which to pay. Um, the last thing I would say is, you know, they managed to make the business work. So people look at this and they're like, they assume PayPal would have been successful. That is far from the case. What they had to do was actually figure out how do you take somebody from something that's completely free, where we're actually giving you bonus money to join and turn it into something that's a revenue generating product. That is the work of, you know, dozens of people kind of like pressure testing ideas, putting things out into the world and slowly taking a massive user base and transitioning them to a paid product. Um, that is the, the, the book I set out to write, the story I set out to tell. Uh, is there a particular story that you love that reviewers often don't mention in their reviews? You're like, I can't believe they didn't mention that one. Yeah. You know, I think that one of the ones that stood out to me that I, I wrote about and that people haven't really picked up on that I would hope that they do is there's a young intern whose name is Robert Frezza, uh, Bob Frezza. And Bob was an exceptional mind and was hired at the company for a summer internship. The, the tragedy of his story is that he passes away kind of while he's working at PayPal. Um, and he has an obituary on the front page of the Stanford Daily. He was at a, a college student at Stanford. And he is responsible for some of the signature products that help the company fight fraud. The patent actually for one of the key technologies only has two names on its, on its application. One is Max Levchin, that the, who the world knows. And the other is Robert Frezza. Um, and I found his story super compelling. And I reached out to his family, actually, and got them to interview them. I interviewed his colleagues. And people said to me, they said, you know, if Bob were alive today, we would probably be talking about him the way that we talk about Steve Jobs today. Um, that's, from a, that's from a professor of his at Stanford. Um, and so I found his story interesting. The reason it's more than interesting, the reason it's illuminating is because somebody who was basically there to do a summer's worth of work ends up creating like signature products that make the company successful, earning equity along the way. Like this is not a, even, even by the standards of, of call it like somebody who might be a prodigy, the level of actually just entertaining his ideas at this company struck me as remarkable, right? It's not every day that like an intern at McKinsey and company is gonna fundamentally change how a place like that works. But in a, at a place like PayPal at that time, there was a real embrace for ideas, no matter where you were in the organizational hierarchy. And, and it wasn't just one story like this. I heard a lot, but I thought his story was particularly emblematic. And I think that you know, part of what happened is that for a group of people, this was also their first experience with this kind of tragedy. Seeing a colleague walk around the office and then having him not be there uh, it really left an impression on, on all of these people. Thanks for, uh, thanks for picking that story out. Um... As you were hearing stories about Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, at any point did you think like, yeah, I understand how they got to where they are now, or you're like, I'm kind of surprised that that's the turn like that their careers and their lives took. It, it's definitely the former. Um, you know, it, it, it is very funny to me that there's all of this attempt to understand who Elon is and, and there's, there's a kind of cottage industry around like divining what he's trying to say when he's sort of flatly telling you exactly what he wants to do. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a story to illustrate the point. At some point in the book process, you know, what was, what was 
to their credit, no one in this story asked for like an advanced copy or asked for script approval. And I would have given I wouldn't have given it to them anyway. But it's sort of like I appreciate that they had some level of professional courtesy. It was actually made it a little easier because I knew this wasn't going to be subject to, you know, uh, Max Levchin's red pen. Right. Um, it, it also enabled me to have integrity about the project. Nobody saw this or asked for like a thumb on the scale. I sent Max a copy of the of the galley, and this just illustrates that I think he is the same person fundamentally, and that a lot of these people are the same person fundamentally that they were back in the day. Max is is a he's really interested in puzzles and math, cryptography, problem solving of that kind. Some specific, you know, like two trains leave a thing, and you got to figure that. That's like that's his idea of a good time is solving that kind of stuff. The company coalesced around these puzzles too, as a way of honoring that. I don't know, I must have lost my mind when I did this, but I built a multi-hundred page puzzle that I, a secret code that I baked into the book. Um, and, and I had this view that like, I just thought this was funny and I thought it was a bit of an homage to the, to the, to the spirit of the place. And I sent Max a copy of the book and you know, I wrote about his, his grandmother and I wrote about his family and I wrote about his professional experience. And I'm, you know, I'm anticipating, I'm a little nervous. Like I'm a little nervous about what he's going to say and, and what he's going to make of it. I poured heart and soul into this thing, but it's his story. He lived it. The thing that engaged him most was my secret code. And he was the first person to crack the secret code. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, like, I mean, look, mad respect that you took the time to do this, but one, don't you have other things you're supposed to be doing? And number two, what did you think about what I wrote about your grandmother? Like, isn't it more relevant for you? And it struck me that like, actually, the love of science and of space technology that Elon had when he was in his teens has carried forward. The love of these, this kind of, of generalized puzzle solving that this team had has carried forward. That a lot of these people, they've changed in different ways to be sure, but, but I do think there's actually a fundamental characterological soundness that, that who they are back then not only is who they are today, but actually explains quite a bit of the the success and the the ambition and the desire to build these things in the world, um, and and I I I you know that that was what I found by studying who they were essentially from you know like called their teen years to their late twenties or early thirties. What did you learn about how innovation happens and how to build an innovation ecosystem? Yeah, my answer is going to be very similar to what I I said earlier. I think I'm still coming up with my conclusions on this, even after having done, done this work. Um, and, and, but I would offer a few interesting observations. The first is that th there is this, this tendency to think of the term innovation as, as in a sort of abstract way. But what I discovered in, in kind of diving into the layers of the PayPal story, you know, it, it, in this context, at least for the PayPal story, it was about solving problems for real people. It wasn't even necessarily about solving the problems of the people who created the company. Like they weren't actually, they, they sort of started that way. Like they set out to solve their own problem, but they ended up actually solving problems for this whole group of eBay users, despite not really being eBay users themselves, right? And so I think that there's this great quote in the middle of the book where when Elon's asked about innovation and he says, you know, it's a process of recursive self-improvement and you always have to ask yourself the question, am I adding value for other people? Because that is what a company is supposed to do. And, and that sounds really, it sounds like 
it can sound sort of vaguely hokey, except that you sort of ask yourself, like, how many things are created that don't add any value, right? Um, and, and then you get to a good place where you're like, huh, I wonder if the thing that I'm doing is is sort of a, a fanciful technology or am I actually adding value in the lives of, of real people? So I found the sort of brass tax innovation to be much more of a process of like discrete problem solving where you're trying to fix something specific for one person or a group of people. And that group can be small and it can be very large, but it doesn't require you to have experienced the problem yourself because a lot of the people who helped make PayPal successful on eBay were never buying and selling on eBay until PayPal started to take off there, right? It's kind of one thing. The second is, this was a very hard period with a lot of disagreement. And I think that that's like, I, I think of that as like something we tend to paper over in these like discussions about innovation is both the level of difficulty, but also the level of, call it like righteousness that people feel, right? Um, like we want, we want our innovators to, to both like create great things and be really, really, really nice people. And, and, and I, I get that. And, and I'm sure that there's a place and a time for, for that. But, you know, you, you sort of have this, there are a bunch of personalities at the heart of this story who are in deep disagreement with one another. And one of the best sort of meditations on that came from Max Levchin himself. And he said, you know, when we were shouting at each other, it's actually because we're trying to get to the truth. Like we're trying to get to like, what is the truth of the product or what is the truth of this fraud fighting problem? Or what is the truth of this thing we're trying to figure out? And it's, it's passion. It's not anger. Like it's actually this kind of like, we're so frustrated that we're not there yet. And we're going to take out our frustrations on each other. Right. And, and I do think of that as something that we tend to, we actually tend to like, think of that as a, as a bug, not a feature, but I actually think of it now, I think of it as a feature, not a bug. Like you, you are going to have some amount of organizational discord in a place that is trying to go against odds and go against opponents and, and all of that. And I think of it now as actually like, a, it's what Max Levchin says in this quote. He says, it's actually a sign of a healthy culture. In fact, people sniping at each other behind each other's backs is worse than people yelling at each other to their face. Um, and so that was the second thing. The third, the third interesting thing to me is we have a, 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 maybe a cast of mind about the kind of person that does technological innovation. Let's call them sort of like young nerds, right, uh, who may or may not be college dropouts. I, I think that story, like that we, we sort of need to retire that archetype. And there have been a bunch of people who have tried to do this and there have been studies and things. But I, you know, I interviewed people who are high school dropouts and I interviewed people who are Marshall scholars. I interviewed people who had two decades in the industry and I interviewed people who were like just left school to join this company kind of on a lark because a buddy introduced them, right? So to me, it was, there were men, there were women, there were like real seasoned vets with marquee names on their resumes and also people who had no clue what they were doing. I think of the, the storytelling of that tends to focus a lot on people like Max Levchin we tend to miss stories of people like Sanjay Bargava who helped to create one of PayPal's like, like most interesting innovations and had had years in the trenches of financial services. And part of the reason that he could think about the financial services realm differently is because he had that experience. And so I think we, we need to have probably like a, a slightly, slightly wider aperture of storytelling, just so we don't think of innovation as something that's like 
explicitly for 15 to 25 year olds who may or may not drop out of college. Like, I think that's kind of like a narrative we need to start to move away from because it also becomes like, it becomes limiting, right? Like there's, there's, there's a way in which it actually holds us back. Uh, and, and I think we need to dispense with it. My guest today has been Jimmy Sony, author of The Founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. Jimmy, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. 